0: I like the idea of our industry having an impact on social, but I think on social issues of our day. But I do think it's way more important to recognize that our primary impact will be on our friends, our family, and our teammates. And let's get that right before we start um, pontificating about what everybody else should do.
1: Hey, I'm Wills Francis.
2: And I'm Justin Ahrens. And from Rule 29, this is Design Of.
1: And today on the show, we want to introduce you to one of the creative industry's most trusted advisors.
2: David Baker is an industry veteran who helps creative businesses and professionals position and reinvent themselves in a rapidly changing market. And right now, in the midst of one of the biggest economic shakeups imaginable, his perspective is more important than ever. David, thank you for being on the show and I was trying to remember the first time I met you, I think it was at a conference and I remember raising my hand Uh and I I think you got, this is going, (laughs) no, 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 it's it's good because this is one of the things I love about you and I was disagreeing with you about specializing Mm -hmm. and I'm sure I'm not the first one that to have done that because I know that's something you, you, um, you, you believe in and talk about. So, um and what
0: what was my answer did i did i just sort of dismiss your purist because you're one of the purest designers like if uh but i don't mean purist as in most pure i mean you're one of the designers who is a purist and so like if you think about well-known designers your name comes up and you're in that crowd and you're always speaking at AIGA and so on and so there's most of the I would say most of the pushback around my message around specialization comes from the most talented people. So you're in good company.
2: Well, that's, (laughs) thank you for that grace. I don't know if I deserve (laughs) it, but I'll take it since it's our podcast. Yeah. You know, originally I, I'll never forget this. You gave me a look and you sort of dismissed me for a second, but I think Mm -hmm. you were processing an answer. And then you came right back at me, and I remember you looked at me and you said here 's what I believe in, and here 's why yeah and I so respected that because you know I was young, I was maybe in my second year of trying to figure out how to run a firm and and ever since then i 've I've compl- you, you had me right there, so thank you um, for that directness and expertise. in fact, uh, we were emailing earlier, and I love this a little quote you have on your email. And that is what's so compelling about Mr. Baker is that he's an expert on being an expert. So <laughs> I, I would, I want to, I want to talk about that because how, if, if I was sitting next to you in a plane, right. And I said, Hey, so uh, David, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I, well, I wouldn't use that
0: phrase. Although somebody said that in New York times and it's just, it'd be criminal to not at least use that in my own promotion. Right. But, oh, especially um, from the times. I mean, come on. Yeah. So what I tell people, it, and it, if you ask the question around my advisory practice, it would be different from my author practice. So from an author standpoint, I really want to address advisors and how they do their work well. But my consulting practice is really designed to address exclusively the creative, digital marketing kind of space. And, and it's a singular purpose. It's just to help them make better business decisions so that and I, in other words I'm not touching the craft at all there's I don't know much about it there's so much help out there I'm just trying to help them make better business decisions because I've just seen that so many really talented people make bad business decisions and it tanks their their future their possibilities and that concerns me right and I've also seen so many people who are not all that talented who just do really well in business because of the quality of those business decisions and so i want to be one of those people that addresses this little group of people who care a lot about the quality of their business as much as they care about the
2: quality of the work itself Mm, that's great Uh, that's how i describe you as well i mean that's that's the, the affinity we have for you is is that and that is uh, the fact that you are really focused in our industry and, and it is a unique um, and nuanced business on some on some level. On other levels, it's really easy, but yet it feels like a lot of great designers, like you said, miss that part. Right, right. How long have you been running your firm? This is the
0: 20th year. 20th year. And yeah. when you started, did you envision running a firm this long or did you envision running a firm uh, that looks like what yours looks like now
2: i would i'd love to tell you yes this was my vision uh but it 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 really wasn't like when i started i wanted to i felt that there was a certain approach and a certain type of of style and service that we could provide and i could do work for the type of organizations that that really uh, were exciting and that if i you know, treated people well and and did great work um, and service them well. That was the one thing I w- I've always understood about this business is that we are a creative agency, but we're a service business first. Right. And if I can't serve people well or have their best interests in mind, then I was going to fail. So um, I knew that going into it.
0: It's interesting because in so many ways, you're, I don't know a lot of details about your personal life, but you are in a really special place here. You've been able to not have a boss all these years. You've been able to make enough money to make things work. You've been able to impact your world. That's the, those are the kind of results that I'm hoping to give people. I, if they are at least competent enough and if they can, and they're disciplined and it doesn't matter too much how smart they are, then they can have a very good entrepreneurial life. That's the exciting thing about this industry.
1: David's upbringing is certainly not typical of someone who would gravitate towards the creative world, but his early years would prove to be formative in the ways in which he saw the world and developed his skill set. Well, I was
0: born in Michigan, in the Detroit area, and when I was four, my parents were medical missionaries, my dad was a uh, dentist, my mom was a nurse, and uh, I was oldest of three boys, and they moved to Costa Rica to live for a year to learn Spanish. And then, when I was five, we went to live with a tribe of Mayan Indians in Guatemala. And I lived there. I didn't come back to live in
2: the U.S. till I was 18. So okay, hold I was on, hold born on, hold in. On. The let's not let's not go too fast. Let's go okay. back to the fact that you went and and you were in a tribe of Mayan Indians. Right. Yeah. Till I was 18, from five to 18. Were you? Uh, one of the first in that area or were you taking over or was there like an established missions there? There, uh, one missionary
0: had gone there, he was not a medical missionary, he was um, teaching literacy so he was trying to capture the language in writing for the first time ever Mm. and he did that and then had a health issue and had to leave so we moved into his adobe home and then we built a wooden structure on top of it for the second floor. Uh, It was very primitive. There was no running water, no electricity, no roads, no stores. So it was a very different life. It didn't feel that different at the time, but looking back on it, it was very, it's almost like a movie set, really. And um, I, I didn't have schools to go to, so I taught myself school. We would order these correspondence courses from University of Nebraska Extension, and I would get those, and I'd finish school in about two and a half months or so, and then I'd just wander the country the rest of the time. So to answer your question, I was wow. born in the Midwest, if you consider Michigan the nor- Midwest, uh, but I didn't really live in the U.S. until I was 18.
2: So when you got to high school in the States, w- with the way you kind of educated yourself and, and also learned life, you know, living the way you did, do you, were you like grade level, were you at the level you needed to be? Were you behind? Were you ahead? Was it just kind of a combination of things? I was
0: way ahead, school had always been, learning had always been easy for me, and the one thing my parents insisted on was that I read a lot, and we had a an ency- a set of Encyclopedia Britannica that I would just read through from A to Z multiple times. So academics was very easy for me, it was, yeah, it was no problem at all. Um, socially, it wasn't quite so easy, I was really weird, you know, I just hadn't been around kids my age. Sure. Uh, I did all. I had all kinds of faux pas at the beginning. I remember flying into New Orleans. That was the gateway to Latin America before Miami became the gateway. And I remember going to the men's restroom and seeing, wow, this is a really cool urinal. Look at this thing. It's all stainless steel, and there's water running all the time. So I, I start to uh, go to the bathroom. And then a minute later, before i'm done these guys walk up next to me and start washing their hands in what i thought was a urinal it was a sink so uh, my parents were still working there so i came back to the u.s on my own and i went to school at a boarding high school a private boarding high school in north carolina called um ben lippen school it was for expats and Um, ambassadors' kids, and some MKs as well. It was a very small school of like 160 kids over the four grades, so I, I did my last three years of high school there, and then I was not interested in going into missionary work. I was interested in teaching linguistics and anthropology, So I had to learn those languages, and Mm. that did take me to seminary, but not because I was headed to the mission field, but because I wanted to learn those languages. So that's where you'd learn Arabic, and Syriac, and Aramaic, and Hebrew, and Greek, and Latin. And so my whole focus was on those languages and anthropology. And I was going to teach at the graduate level. That was my goal. And halfway through that exercise, I just woke up one day, and it was a five-year full-time graduate program. Like, ah, this is, I thought academics was not political. I thought there was freedom Mm -hmm. of thought and all that. And I discovered that wasn't really the case at all. But I was close enough to the end that I went ahead and finished my graduate degree and um, went to work um, at a publishing firm and then eventually decided to start an agency because it seemed like there was a big gap in our little town in Indiana and so that's what got me into this field really is starting an agency without having any previous
2: experience there which really hurt at the beginning i didn't really know what i was doing david may have been learning the hard way but his mistakes and experience would lend to be extremely helpful when it came to helping other agencies and creatives improve their businesses there is i think when you start a business something really beautiful about ignorance in the sense that uh if if you knew how hard it was going to be in the beginning Do you think you still would have been gun-ho about starting your own firm no no
0: i i wouldn't have been there is something beautiful about ignorance to a certain degree because you don't bring the same assumptions to the table uh but it was much harder than i thought i i think and i didn't understand positioning at the time i did not really understand marketing although the the marketing field was still hadn't really caught up with itself it was still an outbound world and i was terrible at outbound so sales was always a struggle for me but it was harder than i thought it we were we were not a wildly successful firm it was a 16 person firm and we made good money but i wouldn't say we were changing anything in the world most of what i what i've learned about how to run a firm in the early days was exclusively from the mistakes that I made and, and then I began to learn very quickly like drinking from a water hose from looking inside all these other firms. So it was a combination of my own mistakes and seeing how people did it well that kind of put me where I am today. So how long did, how long did that firm last? It was uh, five and a half years or so. It was in Warsaw, Indiana. So Northwest, Indi- North, uh, North central Indiana. And, um, and then I transitioned very quickly to helping other, other firms. I don't know if you're, do you remember the publication called creative business by cam foot, Cameron foot.
2: All right. I do. And so okay. I want you to tell your story about Cameron. I'm going to share you, share with
0: you mine. Yeah. So I was a subscriber to the publication and. I don't remember what it cost. It was like $95 a year or something. And part of what came with your subscription is that you got to call Cam and ask him questions. It wasn't that he was into giving free advice. It was just his way of staying in touch with the marketplace. Brilliant. And so I would speak with him regularly. And then one time he said, hey, would you be interested in writing an article on financial management issues? I just don't. That's not a strength of mine. And so I researched it and I wrote it. And then he asked me if I would be willing to help him do seminars. He'd signed up to do a bunch of them and some of them he didn't have time for. So he would give me the St. Louis's and he would take the San Franciscos and you know it was just like but I I was using his content. I was just standing up there and reading basically and then answering questions. And then one day I went to him and I said, "Cam, you really ought to think about providing individualized consulting advice to your readers." They would love that rather than just reading articles. And he wasn't interested for his own reasons. He didn't want to travel and so on. But he immediately said, why don't you do it? I'll put an ad in the publication and you just give me 10% of everything you make. I didn't think anything would come of it. And I wasn't all that excited about it. And I, but anyway, he did it and people started to call. So that was the beginning of my consulting
2: business really was through CAM. Okay, so... Before Rule 29, I was a partner in a small firm in Phoenix, and Mm -hmm. I was the youngest by far. And there there was terminology, you know, like ROI, you know, know, marketing strategy, so many things I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so I bought Cameron's binders. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were like my Bible. I remember I went down and he had a pricing sheet and you'd yeah. go through the sheet and you would itemize everything. And that's one of the ways you figured out your hourly rate, profitability, all that sort of thing. So how long did, how long did that firm last? It was uh, five and a half
0: years or so. It was in Warsaw, Indiana. So Northwest, Indi- North, uh, North Central Indiana.
2: You had this great beginning with, with uh, Cameron and, and creative business. So at what point did you officially, you know, kind of go on your own, plant your flag and start your um, your business now? March 94. It was, I don't remember the
0: exact date, but I know it was March of 94. So that was 26, almost 27 years ago. And I can remember everything about it, actually. I still have all my financial records from back then. I think my revenue that first year was 185000 and then it went to 240 in the next year and i was buying an, a full page ad in communication arts and oh, yeah. how and then i'd sprinkle in an uh, an issue of print every once in a while and i was essentially trying to buy credibility the problem was that i wasn't one of those elite designers so nobody really knew about me but then i discovered that i had another problem too when we moved to nashville Nashville was not on the national scene at the time, and so nobody in New York wanted to hear what anybody in Nashville had to say. It's like this southern hick, whatever, and especially somebody in in London didn't want to hear what a Nashville hick had to say. I'm not from the south, but I lived in the south, and they just made assumptions, and so I had to get a toll-free number to (laughs) sort of get past that so we could have the first 15 minutes of the conversation before they asked me where I was, and now I've worked in 31 countries so it's not an issue but it was March 94 bought an ad in those publications to buy credibility and and then the first thing I would always say when I would on the be on the phone with somebody is oh you you probably saw my ad in communication arts even though they probably hadn't I was just telling them that they that I I had one as if that mattered anything right (laughs) anybody can
1: buy an ad in a publication One of the really special things about David is that he represents this old guard of the industry and has so much good insight for where things may lead in the future. You know, early it was desktop publishing and then it was
0: graphic design and then then it moved to design, right? And then design, all of a sudden, now we had a seat at the business table and we had to learn that language. We had to learn how to speak to those worlds and we... and we've been a little slow in some areas we're still way too focused on belly button gazing and caring what our peers think instead of focusing much more on what our prospective clients think yes. and and those conversations but the business that i'd say the industry is in a better place than it ever has been and that that's exciting there's still ways to go but you're right in those early days we just we were we were just looking for somebody to care about what we did, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And at times we couldn't get out of our own way because yeah. you know we were so uh, interested in 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 doing beautiful things, but not really sharing and educating why some of those beautiful things with strategy and concept and and uh, all of the research that goes into those projects. We didn't know what that we should communicate that. Right. And I feel I, I can't agree with you more now. I think I heard a stat that in the last 10 or 15 years, the industry has changed more than the previous hundred. And I feel that there's lots of great things in that. And I think with the the increase in social media and digital interaction, that's really helped people understand, like you could say brand to my kids now, and they understand what branding is at some level. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: David's network and really his whole business model is based around getting together with other creatives and thinking through how to improve. Justin, as someone who's deeply involved in how AIGA, Creative Mornings, et cetera, how tightly knit is the creative community around this country? Well, I think what uh, is really interesting about
2: David is, so he believes in, you know, organizations that really specialize and focus. And that's exactly what he does. You know, the creative community is really tight. I met David you know, years and years and years ago, and we know many of the same people. Uh, A lot of the owners that, you know, go to the shows or speak or write, that sort of thing, we all kind of know each other, not all of us, but a vast majority of them or have heard of others. And so it is is super tight and it's great that we're able to share knowledge and learn from each other and um, ideally lift the community up, you know, together.
0: My early days in the first two or three years, I was very protective of my market and I didn't want to share or collaborate with my competitors. And then I just had this, I don't know, vision one day that there's a big enough pie for everybody and that we could all benefit from learning from each other. And so I don't know if you ever went to an early conference. I started it called MYOB, Mind Your Own Business. Mm -hmm. And people thought I was crazy because I invited all of my competitors to come speak at it. And uh, the upshot of that was that those people, many of whom are my friends, and I respect the vast majority of those people as doing really good work and they're they're good people as well. That has just spurred me forward to always be learning and um, not worry about who's next to me or slightly ahead of me or right behind me, but just, just Forget about all that and be bold and active and and keep reinventing myself all the time. Just like COVID nineteen has forced many of us to do. At some point, I'm going to be irrelevant. I'm trying to push that as far into the future as possible, and um, that means you're going to have to. Like the biggest the biggest fear I have is that my success will. Will at one point um, make me nervous about innovating too much that mm-hmm. that my success will keep me from constantly being different and learning and the the advisory business has been very successful i just it 's almost embarrassingly so and so it 's easy just to hold on to that and not risk anything and that's that would be this an early sign of death for me, so my approach is to keep um out ahead of my skis not so far that i'm gonna flip and break something but but far enough so that i'm Geez, i mean how if you're sending an email to tens of thousands of people every day i mean every week they're gonna have to look forward to see to learning something new to be challenged to for it to be reasonable for it to be interesting that is the heart of what i do is that weekly email that i send out it's not always weekly but and because you're on the public stage, and the fear of being embarrassed or saying something stupid is really real for me. So it mm-hmm. keeps me on my
2: toes for sure, more than anything else. Yeah. So that's a scary thing. But it's like going on stage and you're giving a talk, especially with the, the advent of social media. You know, you can yeah, you know, get some some uh, interesting feedback right away. So does that <laughs> does that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Does that uh, does that energize you and motivate you, or or? like in a positive way or is it is it a combination of that and fear and a bunch mm. of things or just as a it's, business owner because I know sometimes I'm, I, it energizes me and then I'm like, oh, you know what? I just don't want to mess this up. So that's going to be my energy. You know, right. how do you-
0: I have the wrong personality for social media. Honestly, I'm too defensive and I too quickly move into uh, kind of a castle mode. So I have to be really careful with that. But I do find it energizing. I, I like to, it, Twitter is kind of where I say stupid stuff. Not stupid stuff that would get me canceled. I don't mean that. But stuff that's just kind of a little bit on the edge, kind of interesting, whatever. The emails that I write, I'm much more purposeful with mm-hmm. those. So it's a mixture of wanting to do the right thing and a little bit of terror thrown in there as well, because I can see how easily things can spin out of control. I I think anybody in the public, I'm not any kind of influencer, I'm not that big, I'm just an advisor who's been around a while, but any one of us that has some public role is about two stupid mistakes away from being gone. And that that does uh, come to my mind pretty
2: often, yeah. As you would expect, David's sense of self-reflection is a huge part of how he continues to evolve as a professional. For your business or for, for you, what is some of your guiding principles uh, in in kind of what you do and how you approach the work you do? Those have changed over the years.
0: I I have gotten much better at recognizing my strengths and my weaknesses and just embracing those and being very honest with people up front for instance I'm I'm a terrible coach so I just don't take that kind of thing I also have slowly come to realize that I need to quit putting myself in other people's shoes that it's it's uh it's okay to make a fairly safe assumption that all of us are kind of alike if I can if I can understand myself better, I can safely assume that other people are struggling with the same things that I am. So that takes a little bit of that work out of it. I'm not saying I don't need to be empathetic. That's a different question. It's more about I, I should be able to see myself in others and see them in me. So that that helps a little bit. Mm. The other is just Uh, if I quit learning and Blair and I were talking about this the other day, it was a while ago on a podcast episode, we were talking about what is it that keeps us going? And we we determined that we would answer that question for ourselves without comparing notes. And we both came up with the exact same answer. And that's it. If we ever quit learning, then we're just going to get out of what we do. So there's something about uh, learning, constant learning. It's not a, it's not a, it's almost like a drug to me. If I am not learning something significant every week, then I start to get kind of nervous and grouchy and shaky. And um, So there's, there's this future that keeps pulling me forward and I have no idea how it will end, but it's so amazing to be learning and learning in public. Learning in public is what keeps you honest uh, because the public is <laughs> the public that you're learning in front of will give you feedback very quickly. Right. Yep. So that, that living on the edge is something that really motivates me. And by
2: on the edge, I mean, learning in public, right? So learning and sharing and listening and sharing and right getting feedback, that sort of that loop of learning. Is that what you're, right. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So you've written five
0: books, five books. Uh, only three of them have been any good, but yes, five books. <laughs> well, that, that's a perfect segue <laughs> into my next question. So what is your favorite of the five? Oh, the last one for sure, because I, I stepped out of my academic self and wrote a just a really something I felt deeply passionate about, the the business of expertise. It was really a passionate defense of expertise and where it comes from and why it's important and how to act like an expert. and how to remain relevant and so on. That, that book really changed my whole life more than anything. And it's recent, you know, it was just a couple Mm of years ago. I've got a sixth one written that is all ready to go. It just feels like it's kind of the wrong time to release a book. So I'm starting to get anxious about that. Yeah, that'll be a good one too.
2: So on the book before this, what was it that, you know, can you put your finger on one or two examples of what in that experience changed you, shifted you? Mm Mm-hmm. It was, it was just taking a stand
0: and calling out the notion that um, you can be good at what you do, but if you don't take the craft seriously, then you're cheating your clients. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of goes back to that the way we started this call, this this episode today, where we were talking about positioning and the role that has in being an expert. And it's always bothered me that of all the different segments of professional services, we as a creative industry most push back on the idea of a declared deep expertise. And so I just talk about where that comes from, why it sometimes makes sense, why it doesn't make sense, how to think about transitioning. So it was really just sort of, all right, let's put one last nail in this coffin here and think about what it means. But then if people are open to the idea of a tighter practice focus then what would that look like so gently guiding them down that path
2: what are some of the phrases that you hear when you're talking to business leaders that just drive you bananas (laughs) oh like what will our employees think
0: or (laughs) why can't we just be like and then they'll name a big firm that's well known that seems to violate all those rules but seems to also be successful anyway, or just the myriad examples like the the cobbler's son has no shoes, and we're all familiar with that as a way to justify our lack of discipline around treating ourselves like a good client and That was funny for the first 15 years, but it's just not funny anymore. You know, the excuse to have a shitty website or to not know exactly what you stand for or to not define your culture—it's like, come on, people. um, Let's—I just can't—I can't um, keep from calling that out as just not respectful of what we need to be doing to make this industry be taken more seriously. So, those are the kinds of things that irritate me.
2: Yeah. Well. Another thing that I really appreciate about you and then also Emily Cohen who who you know very well. Yeah, I know Emily well, yeah, she's great. You you both do this really, really well, and that is, hey, take pride in this industry because we all impact each other, you know, and I one of the things that I've talked to my team about is even on those clients that you end up firing, and even if they're really not been great to work with, we try to as much as we can educate them for the next firm right because i just feel that's part of our responsibility some people won't hear it no matter what but that's part of something that you both have talked about and we've really taken to heart so yeah um, I, i hear you on that
1: justin is it fair to say you've um you've been around the block a few times right yeah i mean i've been doing this for a while What do you feel are some of the biggest pitfalls that creative organizations can encounter? Well, I think
2: one of the early sayings that I heard that I really believe is that you're going to only be as successful as you imagine yourself to be, or you're only going to be as taken seriously, as serious as you take, you know, your work. And so I think one of the things that I've learned, and this is something that I think David even talks about in his own specific way is as you evolve and grow, you have to continue to learn and expand and be open. Uh, if you think you've got it all figured out, those are the firms and the individuals that I see that just kind of wither, right? And um, and uh, I'm not going to say go away, but I often will be at a conference or something. They'll be like, "Oh, I don't know how to do this. Or I don't know how to do that." Or you know what I mean? Like you can tell they're they're anxious or nervous or fearful about you know change. And and I get that, but in our industry, that is just part of the deal right especially with technology right. yeah
1: i think it's that yeah i think david sh- shares a lot of those challenges and because the reality is this industry is really tough he has no shortage of clients that need his help
2: oh for sure and again as technology and and the world advances it's it's not going to change right it's going to only continue to be an opportunity but also uh for both both for david as a consultant but also as us as owners and creatives we have opportunities to continue to push our craft and then and to find new ways of doing business. What are some of the biggest pitfalls that you deal with when someone hires you that that you look for right away? Like, what are the first few things? Not
0: understanding financial performance and what levers to pull to change those results, that would be a really big one. That's the one I seem to always start with. So just a basic understanding of how you should view your firm's performance and what that means and how to change it. That's a big one. Another one is something we've talked about a lot of that's positioning and lead generation. And it comes from the pain for that comes from the fact that many of the clients I work with want me to help them design a lead generation plan. And it's just so hard to do if you don't have a positioning. So that's the mm-hmm. second one. And the third sneaks up on people. And it's not that relevant unless the firm has grown. but understanding how the roles must be different and I mean specifically for the principal but also around project management and account management so you talked about how you understood in the early days that serving clients well was an important part and it wasn't just about doing good work and I so believe that because I've just seen that clients your clients are going to notice Deficiencies in account management and project management long before they'd notice deficiencies in the quality of the work because your standards for that work are so much higher than theirs. And the only thing they really know how, and the things they really notice, are related to account management and project management. So that's the third big area. And a fourth one is uh, around, and this wasn't true of my early practice, but helping them land this plane so what are the succession options that make sense many people will just simply close their firm down at some point and that's a totally acceptable option but other people are aiming for a multi-million dollar payday or they want to transition it to an internal person or team and they want to maximize the value so i i didn't know anything about that in the early days but that's a big part of my practice as well
2: yeah and that seems like something that is continuing to to be more of a thing is, it is. Uh, yeah. which is exciting. I think, you know, for, for me, I'm in my 20th year. Uh, I have no idea, you know, how long the, the, the future has me here. I hopefully it's a long, long time, but at some point I would love it to keep going. And I, and I'm sure there's ego and pride in there for sure, but less so than having something that has a reputation and, and maybe some um, weight behind it that someone can take, and and continue to to have a a a great career in uh, and
0: why walk away from it if there is some residual value that could help pay for all the years you put into this right i think most of us assume that it's a job that pays pretty well if we do things right and we don't assume much more than that but there are there are thousands of cases where people have made a lot of money if they made the right succession option so it is worth exploring that didn't used to happen in the old days right it was very rare that a firm would last beyond the first generation but yeah there's i think we've learned how to do that better than we have in the past
2: yeah and and again i think goes back to our early conversation where there's a perceived value and an actual value of what we do uh in this industry for business right so i want to shift a little bit to social innovation Mm mm-hmm so, I believe you are on the advisory board of the SVA grad program for social innovation. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh-huh. The reason I bring that up is I think you know part of our uh, nuanced positioning. Um, you can make fun of me later, is to make creative matter in a way that impacts the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of ways that we approach that. So, from your perspective, uh, designers who are interested in social innovation, do you feel that they have a viable fut- professional option future uh i said that really poorly but do you see them as having a lot of viable options in the future do you see that lessen the same or increase you know just from your perspective in the next five ten years
0: that their firms could have an impact on the social space mm-hmm. yes i do for sure because so much of change is wrapped in communication well done and change management is primarily about empathy and communication in my mind so yes for sure uh, what what discouraged me in the early days about that though is is the fact that a lot of principals that were running firms were committed to that cause but were shitty advisors they are sh- shitty managers you know they And it it always bothered me that here you want to change the world and the people who work for you just kind of hate you you know uh so i was trying to close that gap first because when you when you talk to people and you try to get a deeper understanding of what's changed them like for instance let's use your firm for example so picture one of your employees who works for you for say six years earlier in their career and then they leave uh, and, and they're 60, and they're thinking back over their life, and they think about who impacted them, they they won't remember the kind of work they did for clients, and those clients certainly won't remember the work they did for them, but they will definitely remember their experience as an employee under your management care. and. So- i like the idea of our industry having an impact on social but i think on social issues of our day but i do think it's way more important to recognize that our primary impact will be on our friends our family and our teammates and let's get that right before we start um pontificating about what everybody else should do right yeah. so yeah I, I do believe that it's useful for sure and i love that
2: yeah, I would tell you, in our 20th anniversary year, which has been quite uh, uh, challenging, interesting, you know, last whatever we're in now—six months, four months—I've even analyzed that more. I, I was on the, I was on my bike just a few months ago, and uh, typically I try to hold that, those thoughts kind of out of my mind. I just try to enjoy it. Like riding a bike is like my sort of spiritual like you know zen or and I was writing pretty hard and I was getting really tired and all of a sudden these these thoughts started coming into my mind and one of them is how are you doing as a leader right and I was like oh, I think I'm doing pretty good and then right after that came of how are you doing as a virtual leader because I'm a very extroverted individual and, and I like to you know kind of have the check ins and I was just like man I don't know I yeah. could be terrible. And so what I love about what you're saying is it's important no matter what you're doing is if you believe in, in team and and you believe in that you're, you want to work in a way that um, is collective because the, the business I'm, my name may be on it and I may be the one that goes on stage or gets the award quote unquote. It's not me. It's us as a collective. Right. And so we've really tried to, uh, spend time to ask questions and and get to understand how we can be better at it because I'm not sure I'm a good virtual um, boss. And I think you talked about that in your early Zoom webinars about start trusting your team. Right, right. Or you'll go nuts because there really isn't any other option at the moment, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I will do more writing and more speaking, a little bit less advising as the years pass, uh, I'm 60, I'm in great health, I'm very active and energetic, I've got all kinds of hobbies I love. I love to travel, I don't see any fading of what I'm doing, although I think the focus will be a little bit different. I'm definitely pickier with the kind of clients that I'll take on, Um, but I don't feel any big pressure. I feel like I've already lived a very full life and everything from here forward is just pure gravy. So I'm just grateful for it. And whenever it ends, it ends. I I do worry that at some point, maybe somebody's going to think I'm just too old to be relevant. So I work feverishly to keep young at heart and be very aware. I read hours a day, have great conversations with people. So I'm trying really hard to stave that off. But at some point, you know, it's inevitable. Um, I don't see any... Unless some big health thing happens, I don't see any big changes
1: coming for the next 10 years or so, but we'll see. Even though he may not be doing as many conferences and travel, David's production is still at an all-time high. We live on
0: 61 acres, and I'm uh, building a mile and a half trail through the woods that we can walk on every day. So big machinery and stuff that can easily kill you, that's my current... (laughs) (laughs)
2: that sounds amazing Yeah, Um, awesome well David I want to say to you um, not as the host of the show but as someone who has been in this industry for a while how much I appreciate you and uh, your steadfastness and your um, directness with your thoughts it's really inspiring and and great to hear and and as a host of the show I'm just so grateful that you uh, gave us some time to share the story and let me dig in a little bit to those early years of, I had no idea that you grew up, you know, so remote and uh, how great that is. So thank you again. Thank you,
0: Justin, for having me. I can't wait to hear the episode. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it.
2: You bet. Thank you so much, David, for being on our show and for the years of just great guidance and passion for doing business and doing it the right way. For those of you who want to know more about David and all the different uh, wisdom he has out there go to davidcbaker.com and you can find uh, all of his books but also if you're into podcasts listen to the two bobs podcast he does with the brilliant blair ends and you, again you can find all of that at davidcbaker.com i'd also like to thank sleeping at last for being the soundtrack to our show for more on ryan and his music please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for sleeping at last wherever you get your music from and to design of his audio engineer Steve Wick.
1: Well, Wills, what do you want to say about Steve? Steve is like, he's like the pat on the back after you just crack that home run on the baseball field. Wow. So deep. You did it! Congratulations!
2: Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as Wills and I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash Design of Podcast. See you next episode. Thanks, guys. Hey, Wills. What? That's two in a row. Thanks for being on the two show. Two in a row. Love it.